Welcome to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. With each episode, we'll sit down with the world's leading business leaders, entrepreneurs, and political figures. It's a peek behind the scenes of global business, culture, and politics. A first-hand conversation with the people who shape the world's economy. If you don't feel smarter afterwards, then we aren't doing our job. Melinda Gates is the co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. As head of one of the world's largest philanthropic organizations, she pushes to save lives and to speak out on the developing world's toughest challenges. We spoke with Melinda late last month in Seattle, ahead of the release of the foundation's annual letter, and talked about how important it is to improve access to contraception, how to keep more women in science and technology, and the unique relationship she and her husband have with legendary investor Warren Buffett. start out with this year's annual letter. It's written in a slightly different format. It's written to Warren Buffett, who 10 years ago pledged $30 billion to the foundation. It was a real game changer, not only in terms of the philanthropic world, but obviously what you guys were able to achieve. Who made the decision to write the letter this way, and what has been the response and the thinking behind it? Uh, well, first of all, I'm glad we got a chance to sit down and talk. It's great to be yeah. together. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Warren's really inspired us over the years. You know, for years, he's written an annual letter for Berkshire Hathaway to talk to the shareholders about how he's thinking about the business. And so he really said to us many years ago, you know, at some point, it might be nice for you all to sit down and write a letter. And given that it's the 10-year anniversary of his gift, we've been doing this now for several years, but we thought, let's use that as a marker in time to really spend some time, Bill and I, reflecting on you know, what have we accomplished? If we're trying to tell him what's his return on investment, what has the foundation with our partners really done? And uh, it just it was, ended up being a really good exercise for both of us. You talk a little bit in that about some of your uh, learning experiences with him over the years. Mm-hmm. And one story that you bring up is in Hong Kong, how when he went to McDonald's, he actually pulled coupons out of his pocket to pay. Did not know he had those exactly. in there. <laughs> I'm curious about what he often refers to you and Bill as an example to himself, and that you remind him a lot of the work that he did with his wife. What have you learned from him and some of what you've seen from him in terms of returning this value? We don't normally think about foundational work as returning a value on investment. It's, it's an unusual way to look mm. at it, but it was really important to make in terms of the numbers that you bring out. Yeah, well, I think it's important to say, first of all, about Warren, the most important thing Bill and I have learned from Warren are life lessons, even separate from money or, you know, the the return on investment is these life lessons that how you live your life is really important. And Warren has a set of values that he's very true to and lives to. And one of the reasons why I think we put that story in uh, the annual letter about the coupons, because it did surprise us in Hong Kong, is he's also just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Like he loves to laugh and make everybody feel good. And so we feel like as long as we've known him, we've been lucky because we learn by his example. And then this tremendous gift that he gave to the foundation that, you know, we weren't expecting to receive. He wasn't expecting to give, right? His his money was going to go through the foundation that has his wife's name on it. And she unfortunately passed away. And so when this gift came, we were so stunned by it. And I think one of the things that we realize is you feel a responsibility to give your own wealth thoughtfully, but boy, if it's somebody else's wealth, you really better do it in a very careful and thoughtful way. And and so we do think about what's the return on that and, you know, how many lives have been saved? Have we done it in the best possible way, the most efficient way, used the best partners, found the best partners? And um, I think Warren's really inspired us in that way. And and the other thing I'll say, though, is he does say, I don't want you to be risk-free. Like, I want you to swing for the fences. You're taking on society's hardest problems that are left behind. So take risks, swing for the fences. And so, you know, we've had some failures along the way, and Warren's been okay with that because he knows we're trying to move very difficult problems forward. We talk about swinging for the fences and live saves. You use the number of 122 million of Mm -hmm. children's lives that have been saved. When the scale of that kind of gift came in, how much did you plan out? How much did you know Mm -hmm. at that point what kind of initiatives you thought would be important, that you thought would make the most impact? As you said, there have been bumps along the road. But in terms of allocating that investment, as well as your 
the 30 billion that was already in the fund, how much did it change the way you thought about the mm. scale and the impact of what you could do? Yeah, it, well, it had a substantial effect on, on the scale and what we could do. But the way we thought about it when the gift came in is we were already working in global health. We felt like we had gained some knowledge of understanding of the field, much, much more to go. Believe me, we're a learning organization. We have so much to learn, and I hope we are learning throughout our lifetime. But we had already gotten going on things like vaccines, malaria drugs, uh, working in tuberculosis. But when Warren's gift came in, we had another series of, of projects, these learning grants we were doing, because we were, we were already saying to ourselves, it's phenomenal. To, people have to start with a healthy life, but it's not enough. Like, you've got to make sure they have that healthy start in life, you know, good basic health, but then they've got to be able to lift themselves out of poverty, right? So we'd started a series of grants in things like agriculture, because we know that's what's lifted many, many countries out of poverty is, is first agriculture. And so we were able to take Warren's gift in and then scale some of those anti-poverty programs up like agriculture substantially and much more quickly than we probably would have otherwise. I want to talk about the central theme of the letter this year, which is really about optimism. Mm. And there's a line right at the end that says, the future will surprise the pessimists. Mm. When you look at what you're doing and you look at the world that we're in now, some of the challenges that we face, some of the political challenges that we face, what gives you cause for that kind of optimism? It runs throughout in terms of the work you're doing and where you see a better future and a better global future, perhaps most importantly. Mm. Well, you have to turn to, to the facts about what's happening. You know, despite the things that people read in the headlines about all the negative news, and there is negative news every day, but the world is getting better. Poverty has been cut in half, in half, in 25 years. You know, we talk about the fact that, you know, 122 million children are alive because of this vaccine work that's happened um, and malaria bed nets getting out there. So it's, it's both the facts, but then... You know, I've been lucky enough. I travel the developing world three times a year, and I'm not just doing the government meetings. I'm out in remote, rural, dusty villages. I'm out in slums all the time, and life is getting better for people. It's not getting better fast enough. Bill and I are also impatient optimists. We want it to get better faster, and we see things we have in the U.S. that if brought in the right way to these countries, people will take them up and use them. So, but even, but when I travel, even a place I've gone over and over and over again, this remote part of Tanzania, life is getting better. Farmers are hooked up to markets. They're selling more eggs. They're having more income. They're putting their kids in school. So it's not just palpable from the numbers. You have to look at the numbers to rely on the facts, but it's palpable when you're out on the ground. And I think sometimes we forget that in the myriad of issues that we face in our own lives in our country. Well, let's talk about that. You <clears throat> come from Dallas, mm. um, middle-class family, uh, father who worked quite hard to send four kids through college. You worked hard. You became an engineer. Mm. Do you empathize or how do you identify with people who feel particular in this country that they have been less left behind, that there yeah. is this disconnect, that they don't feel optimistic? There's a statistic in the letter that says... 99% of people don't understand that extreme poverty has been cut, or when we look at sort of the global improvements that you see out there in places like Tanzania. Where is this disconnect coming from? Does some of the rhetoric that you see alarm you, make mm -hmm. you concerned, not just uh, in terms of a Donald Trump administration and the rhetoric around immigration, but in other Western democracies where people feel less hope? Yeah, I think we need to understand that and we need to listen to those people and we need to empathize and put ourselves in their shoes. You know, Bill and I were out in rural Appalachia in Kentucky last year getting to talk to communities of, about what poverty is like in their communities and what causes them to not have hope and what causes hope, right? And we were in this amazing public school, public school in Kentucky called Betsy Lane. And because of the leadership in that school from the starting at the top, this female principal, all the way down, all the way through the school, they were telling those kids, you can go to college. And they were not only telling them, they were showing them how, showing them how to take the ACT, how to prepare. They were teaching them what they needed to know in math. And so when you would be in that whole school building, there was a sense of hope and optimism because the kids would say, 
I can go get a job either in this community or I can move to the city and get a job. And it was so interesting to talk to how many of the kids about how they wanted to go off to college and then come back and make life better in their own community. And so I think there are absolutely, there is poverty in the U.S. We need to acknowledge that. And we need to acknowledge that some of these amazing government programs have helped, but we probably need to do more. And I think it's time for us to listen to a lot of the people who are still experiencing poverty in the United States. Do you think leveraging education investment in particular is one of the key routes to addressing that long, longer term in terms of making that investment, also from private investment in education? I think absolutely education is the key. That is what we know lifts families up. So if you look back in the history of my family, my father was the first one to go to college in his family. He was an engineer. So he left New Orleans, went to Georgia, went to California, eventually settled in Dallas. He thought that his four children should be college going. And I got that message as young as I can remember. And it gave us a sense of hope. And he said, you can go to even a better school than I went to. And even on my engineer's salary, we'll have a business on the side, your mom and I, and we'll all work on that, these townhouses and apartments, and we will figure out how to put you in college. And so for all of my siblings and I, we had that vision and that hope. And so when I see around the United States, we need to make sure kids have great elementary school education, great high school, and great options for college, whether it's university, whether it's community college. I've met lots of kids in North Carolina and Tennessee who are saying, hey, my dream is to actually go to the the local community college because there are great health care jobs. And I want to be a medical assistant. I want to be a radio technologist. I want to be a nurse. Or I want to go install solar panels. We need to have a certain amount of a college degree. And you can choose. Is it two years or it's four years? But we need to make sure those options and those horizons are open for all kids in this nation. Because When I go out, you know, these kids have unbelievable potential, but if they're in a school that doesn't give them a great education or doesn't say to them, you can be college going, there's a loss of hope for them. And that's not right for our country or our democracy. I want to talk about one of the initiatives that you've been a pretty fierce public advocate for, which is access to contraception Mm. and family planning. You note in the letter that when you decided to really become a public face in this issue, a politically sensitive issue, that Warren said to you it was gutsy and mm-hmm. it was right, and mm-hmm. that you still keep that note from him. There's no question that even over the years that you've been so intimately involved in this, it, has got, it remains politically sensitive, it remains a challenge. You show the statistic of moving to 300 million women mm-hmm. now in developing countries who have access to modern contraception, modern family planning techniques. Where do you see the quickest ways to make further inroads into that battle in terms of the biggest challenge, which is making people understand the anti-poverty effects of giving women access to contraception. So so I, as you said, absolutely believe in universal access to contraceptives. We see the difference it makes when a woman, you know, I can do this. I've talked about that I've used contraceptives in my life. When you can plan and space the births of your children, they are healthier and the woman's healthier. She's less likely to die in childbirth. And this is incredibly important in the developing world because many women still die in childbirth. And so I think the opportunity there, so it's a hallmark for the world that we have 300 million women have access to contraceptives now in the developing world. There's still 200 million women asking us for them. And so what we need to do is give them options, lots of different options. We know that men and women use contraceptives in different ways over their lifetime, whether they're spacing the births or they're said, I'm finished having children. And we know from societies all over the world, whether it's the United States or Peru or in India, when women have different options for contraceptives, they're more likely to use them. So they might decide that for a short time they're going to use a contraceptive that's short-acting, or they might decide eventually they want an implant. Many young girls in, in our own country are starting to use implants in their arms. Those are becoming very popular in the developing world, but we need to deliver them so women understand them and they have access to them if they choose to use them. How much is this a battle now of, of getting that access to women instead of actually getting the product out there in terms of going into these communities, developing these women's groups, educating men as well as to how important it is. What are you seeing on the ground that is working in that part of the fight? Sure. So so you're absolutely right. There are two pieces of this. They're making sure that women have access, that we fill the supply chain with all the types of supplies of contraceptives we have in the United States. There are 
more than 100 million women that are saying to us, well, 200 million women saying they know about them and they want them. And I've met women who literally, it's like, they're, they're begging me for them. They're saying, why is it? You know, I met a woman named Sadie. She said, why is it that clinic right there? She was in Niger used to have contraceptives and they don't anymore. Why can't I get them? Why do I have to walk 10 kilometers in the heat to get them? So there are both 200 million women who are telling us they want access. And then on the other hand, there are absolutely women who say, um, I might know about contraceptives, but my husband won't let me use them. Or maybe it's a new idea to them. I, I've met women around the well in Niger who have never heard of contraceptives. And so the way to reach those women is in very culturally sensitive ways. So, for instance, the government in Niger has set up something called a husband school, where they're first teaching the men why their children will be healthier if they can space the births of their children and why their women are less likely to die in childbirth. So they first reach the men and then they are able to go in and talk to the women. And then it does become a husband and wife decision about how are we going to space the births of our kids. So we have to do that work in certain areas in very culturally sensitive ways. And it's the people in the community who can get those messages out. But when you're in a place like Niger and you're around the well talking to these women and they haven't actually heard of birth, birth contraception, they haven't really embrace family planning, they, they don't know it is available. How do you take that from that level, a basically a zero knowledge level, to getting them on contraception, involved with family planning, talking to women who can be supportive, other men in their community who can be supportive? You've been on the ground floor and sort of doing that and seeing that experience. What works in that journey? So as one woman said to me in Niger, because I, I had been at the well and I talked to some young women, never had heard of contraceptives, and they were already having children. And then I went back and talked to an elderly group of women who had been using contraceptives in the same village. And I said to them, hey, there are these young women who, who don't know about contraceptives. And they said, I said, how are they ever going to get the message? They don't even come out of their homes very much except to go get, collect water. And they said, don't worry. They said, we talk. Women talk. They said, we talk at the birth of children. We talk when we grind millet. We talk when we get together to wash clothes. We'll talk to them, and we'll tell them we use them and why we use them. And this is what we're finding all over the world. In fact, Bill and I talk about in this annual letter these self-help groups. In India, there's 75 million women in self-help groups. That if a woman joins a self-help group, which is usually about 30 women who get together, and that group gets just a little bit of education about maybe contraceptives or about a new seed they can grow on their farm where they get more yield... As they start to take those new tools up with the original information they got, they start to learn about all kinds of other things. And suddenly, these women have their voice, and they start to have agency. And they'll tell you, the way my mother-in-law treats me in my home is different. The way my husband treats me is different. The way my sons treat me is different. And then women start to become empowered. And I've met these groups where they've been meeting over two years, and they'll say to me, do you know what I did? We went and took to the government a rape case in our village that needs to be tried. That's what women's empowerment is. And so when you, if you help get these groups formed and you start them with little bits of education, they eventually take it over, and boy, do they empower all the women around them, because women talk. One of those women's groups you've talked about is a pretty sensitive issue about sex care workers and mm -hmm. meeting with those people and using women's groups to really remove the stigma of that kind of work. And in the letter, Bill says that if there's one place he would like to take Warren Buffett to see, it is group meetings with sex care workers and how it's effective in really helping them, driving up support and reducing this stigma. Is that somehow you, you see that those groups and sort of how important that work is in places like India and elsewhere? They are fundamental. I mean, I just... If you'd said to me before that, is it even possible to break through the stigma of sex work? I mean, I've, I've sat with many of these groups of women, and what they're, the pressures that they face from their family, from their community, they're completely ostracized. But when you see the power that when they come together and they start to realize, hey, wait a minute, you know, they all have a story about why they got onto this. A lot of them, it's to put their kids through school, right? And they start to get their dignity back. They start to realize, wait a minute. We're allowed government services. We're not supposed to be turned away by HIV services by the government or tuberculosis services. Like, there's power in the group and their collective, and they can go and start demanding those services. I had no idea how powerful those groups would be. And I think sometimes 
the women don't even understand when they start how powerful they're going to be as a group, but they empower each other to have their voices. And I met this one group um, actually last year in, in a different place in India, and it was really interesting. The women all went around, and when I sat in the circle with them, they'd been going for about two years as a group, and they went around, and the first thing they did is they asked me my name, and they went around, they each told me their names. And they said, you know, as we talked more and more, they said, one of the things you should know, Melinda, is before a year, two years ago, before we started this group, no one in the village knew our names. Not a single person knew our names. And now, not only do we all know our names, everybody in our village knows our names. And it gives them their voice. It gives them their dignity and their agency. And that's what self-help groups do no matter who you are when you're in one. How, in terms of building male support, when you see it, when there's when these structures are so hierarchical, particularly in some of the most, most remote areas, and breaking through that, and also getting men to engage with the necessity of family planning with contraception use. How have you found it, you and Bill, to see what's successful in really getting them on board with the really fundamental changes that you're bringing to some of these communities? Well, these are cultural changes, and I think cultural changes are some of the hardest ones. Even in the United States, breaking through cultural change can be hard, right? We all have certain mindsets. But as they see their life getting better, when all of a sudden they start to see, oh, if we're having fewer children, like my wife, literally a lot of them will talk about my wife is less stressed, or my home is more calm, or my whole house, you know, it's just better organized. When they start to see life getting better for themselves and their kids, then they want it. And if we organize, sometimes I've seen, some, there aren't very many, but there's some men self-help groups. When they get together, I've actually met with one in Malawi a couple of years ago. And I said to them, well, well, why would you make these changes? They were making a lot of changes in their household, really, to allow their women's voice and their, women, their wives' agency. And I said, well, why would you make these changes? And they said, because our homes are better. They said, our homes are happier. The kids are healthier. Everything looks better. And they, I said, well, how will you convince other men like that they should start to make these changes? just, you know, space the births of their children, help the men were helping a little more, the women with the chores around the house. And they said, I just invite them over to the dinner, to dinner at my house. And when they see how good my house looks and they see the meal that we have, they start to want the same thing too. And that, I do think that's how we break through all of this cultural change. We learn from one another and we have to kind of see it to say, I want that and it's possible. What do I have to do? What steps do I have to take to make that change? Recently, we saw millions of women uh, marching mm. in various cities around the world um, after the election of Donald Trump and his inauguration. We have seen sort of a talk about rolling back women's access to contraception mm. in the U.S., uh, women's access to family planning, clinics worldwide that take U.S. aid money that will no longer be able to give advice on abortion, access to family planning, et cetera. Are you worried at all that we're in a climate right now where these type of initiatives, this type of work could be threatened, not just by your work, but by other foundations, other advocacy groups, other initiatives that are doing similar work? Well, I'm personally concerned about the Mexico City policy that's put back on, and particularly um, We'll see what happens of it, but you know, I believe in universal access. I'm very open about that, universal access to contraceptives. But potentially the way this policy is being talked about this time, which we've never had before in the history of the United States, the way they're talking about potentially implementing, where it would actually affect clinics that also give out HIV AIDS drugs, tuberculosis drugs, malaria drugs. Look, we have the 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 U.S. gives to something called the Global Fund, uh, which is for AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. 20 million people are alive because of that fund. So when I go out around the developing world and I visit these very small clinics that the U.S. and the U.K. and France and Germany have all helped set up, and to think about they won't be there in a community anymore, that a person won't be able to go get their HIV AIDS drugs, we believe in giving people in the United States HIV AIDS drug, but because of the way we're gonna implement a policy, all of a sudden the whole clinic's gonna be shut down? Wow, that doesn't sound to me like the American people we are and the value we have for life. We've chosen as, as a country to give money to this fund, but now we're gonna, we, might, we might put all of that work at risk? That, that just doesn't make sense to me. And when I think about our values as Americans, when I think about what we care about or the dignity of life, we care about that 
But we also care about peace and security. And if we want peace and security in the United States, making these investments in the developing world is what allows people to stay where they are, right? They want a better life in their own community. So there's also a peace and security aspect to, to it to me that makes absolutely no sense in that. There's been a backlash against kind of international investment, international aid in some quarters, not just the U.S. and the U.K. as well. You just describe it as you know, fundamental to what we believe as Americans as values. Do you think they understand that when you say that, that the trade-off for this type of policy is literally not giving people access to life-saving drugs? What could be done to make that advocacy more clear? Will you be even more front and public about this? Well, I think you're going to hear Bill and I, and through the annual letter, we're trying to speak the truth about what we see, you know, through all the work we do all year long, and we've done for over 15 years now, all the changes in the developing world. And no, in the U.S., less than 1% of Americans know that poverty has been cut in half in the last 25 years. So it's it's something we're trying to get the messages out about so that people understand that these investments that we make, that we ask our government to make, are making a profound difference in the developing world. And, you know, I would say to people, if you care about these issues, if you care about peace and security in the world, call your senator and say, I care about these foreign aid dollars continuing to be spent in the same way they have been in the past. A lot of the work you do is very personal, Mm. is very on the ground, is very with women around the well in clinics. Mm. You two have both literally seen children die on this work. How do you compartmentalize that How, in terms of looking at the broader picture? How does that experience affect you? How do you move forward seeing some of the experiences you've had but keep focused on the larger goals mm-hmm. of the foundation and your larger personal goals as well? Um, I try actually not to compartmentalize it. And that sounds funny, but the thing that I've had to learn in this work is so I was just recently, as I said, out in Nigeria, and I saw a young girl who was Fatima, who was three and a half, and she was very, very sick. And her mom was there with a one-year-old in her arms. The dad was there. They'd taken out a loan to even get her to this clinic that I was in. It looked to us from the outside, and I had a few doctors traveling with me. They'd given her the wrong diagnosis, but they were going to move her, which was the right thing, to the next level up of the healthcare clinic. But nobody was moving quickly to move this child. And um, the family was going to have to take out, if they could find it, another loan to get her to this next clinic. And so her, her outlook was quite bleak. And what I try to do when I experience things like that is to not turn away from them. So in the moment, I have to compartmentalize. But when I go back to my hotel room at that, that night or at the end of the trip, I try to take time somewhere before I come home and back to my busy life with three kids in Seattle and really process what I've seen and, and realize, you know, the outlook for that little girl is very, very bleak. And you have to take that in as hard as it is. And you have to feel how heartbreaking it is. And then I try to use that in other places in my work to fuel the work that we do or to talk about a story like Fatima so people know what I actually see and experience. Um, because we, I think there's a thing that we sometimes forget that this universal care that we have for our children, that a mom in the U.S. or a dad in the U.S. has, that is exactly how people feel all over the world about their child. Their child dying is as tragic to them as it would be to me if my child died. And we need to connect with that because I think it's in that connection that we then decide to take action. Neither of you, you or Bill, have been afraid of taking controversial positions, of standing out, um, putting your voice forward. One of which you discussed in the letter is Bill and, and, and his stance on doing autopsies on children yeah. who have died. How, when you, when, you, when you know that that is going to cause controversy, but you believe in it, how have you learned over the years to sort of embrace that and understand that you're likely to get backlash, people are likely to disagree, and how do you... you sort of, choose to, but really stay true to what you believe in in your own personal ideals? Well, I think, I think you constantly have to go back to who we are as a couple, we do, and what our values are. And that when we're going to take a controversial position, we try to be incredibly thoughtful about it. We try to be as knowledgeable as we possibly can with scientists around us, with thought leaders around us about, okay, what will the controversy be? 
And yet, if you believe in these things and you see what we've seen, you know it's right to try and move them forward. And you have to try not, you have to not be afraid of the controversy. You have to know it's going to come, but you have to say, this is what I've seen. This is what I believe. This is what I know from all the work we've been doing and the people around us and actually being in these places. And I think, you know, sometimes controversial things have controversy for lots of history and lots of other opinions and reasons. And yet when you can break through that, that's actually where you get the greatest change. And so we didn't know when Bill decided that he wanted to move the foundation to move forward on these minimally invasive autopsies, which we learned about, we didn't know whether the people in these communities would allow it. And that work had to be done very sensitively with them and very carefully with other people in the community. But once we started to break through that idea, people said, yeah, I care about knowing what my child did. And if it can contribute, if it can contribute to the story of my child's death, can contribute to the world, that's a healing place for those parents, right? That there's some hope for other children. And so sometimes you just take the controversy knowing that you just got to keep looking forward and that the right things will come about. We've talked a lot about women's empowerment and a component mm-hmm. of that and an increasingly important part of your work is women's economic empowerment as well and financial empowerment. Over the years you've been involved, access to mobile phones, access to other forms of technological innovation have really boosted women's ability to participate in this sort of economic financial sector. Where do you see, again, the, the further gain, the most gain can be made, whether it's through mobile devices, mobile banking, and how important is this to really driving up women's empower, empowerment in the developing world? Yeah, so I think mobile phones are going to be one of the very key things. It's kind of a route around the banking system in a sense, because if you think about it, the poor are not welcomed at banks. And even if they put their money in their pocket, they'll tell you if they get on the train or the bus, they have to spend the money to get on the train or the bus. They got to travel to the city, they get robbed on the way, and then they get to the bank and they're not welcome. And yet, mobile phones are all over the developing world. I'll be in a remote, dusty village where you wouldn't think there was a mobile phone that could ring around, and I'll be talking to a woman and chickens will be running around, and all of a sudden the phone rings in her pocket. I didn't even know she had one. And she'll pull it out and somebody's calling her. And so what we're finding is that when men and women have access, and particularly women, to mobile banking on their phone, where they can save a dollar a day, two dollars a day, because women do have income. As much as we don't survey them and find out, when you talk to them, and we're starting to now survey them, they have lots of income. And so when they have, I mean, not, not... a lot personally, but they'll have little bits of it at times. When they can start to save it in a bank account and it's not in a tin can under their bed where a relative can come ask them for it or it doesn't get eaten by rats, when it's in a mobile money account, then when it comes time for the school fees, she's got money to put her kid in school. And when it comes time where there's a drought, which happens a lot in Africa or food shortage, she's got money to go buy food at the market. And it's transformative in these women's lives. And we actually, there's a recent survey that came out, a very long-term study um, about women who've had access to mobile banking over the last three years. And it's lifted a substantial number of women out of poverty in Kenya. And Kenya is one of the places that have had mobile banking the longest. So I'm very optimistic about this. And we just have to make sure that mobile phones and those bank accounts really get in all women's hands, not just a subset of women's hands. You mentioned throughout sort of studies and relying on uh, data to really drive decisions you've made, decisions the foundation have made, decisions that you're personally invested in. As you expand on that and really look at data and the gender gap Mm. in data, so to speak, recently 80 million committed to looking at women and girls in terms of data. What are your ambitions for that over both the short term and then longer term in terms of harnessing big data and looking at the gender gap? Yeah, so... So what we don't measure, we don't work on. And so the interesting thing in this philanthropy space is we haven't measured so many things. But when you look at what we have measured, where we're, where we're measuring things, HIV, AIDS, drugs getting out, malaria. Finally, we set up a data system for contraceptives. We're actually finally measuring contraceptives, and we know where to work and to act. The thing we do not measure are women. And, and talk to women. A lot of our surveys that we do do, the great household surveys that are done across Africa, they're done every five years, they're, they're, they're inadvertently biased against women. I'll give you an example. They, they start by asking the man and woman who has income in the household. And as soon as he answers, 
they don't even ask is there secondary income in the household. So in Uganda, when they added the second question was to then to the woman, well, do you have income? And she would say yes. It added, it turned out it added $700 million to their economy, right? That they didn't even know that women had this amount of money and were working. So we need to measure all kinds of things about women, about their agency, their empowerment. Do they have access to mobile banking? Do they have access to a mobile phone? Do they have access to clean water? And once we start to understand these things about women, then we will actually know how and where to act. But without good data, it's very hard to act and to go and say, to another government or a philanthropist, hey, we've put money into this issue for women. Do we know if we're getting a return? Mm, I'm not really certain. Whereas if I can say to them, I absolutely know I've gotten this many women signed up on mobile phones with this many bank accounts, and I've lifted this many women out of poverty, then they say, wow, we want to invest in that too. We know it works. Are you surprised still when you look at this landscape that this is such an issue, this sort of absence of data about women and girls' daily lives, not just in developing countries, you know, in developed countries as well, that really it's such a, we're starting from such a low playing field to go up and that so much money has to come in to really drive this kind of data gathering exercise. Yeah, it always surprises me when we bump up against this. And we bump up at it, you know, as I said, in the developing world, but even in the United States, I mean, a great example is women in technology, right? The time I graduated, I'm a computer science degree, um, time I graduated in late 1980s, you know, 37% of computer science degrees went to women. Well, now we're down at 18%. When, when at the same time in late 1980s, law degrees and medical degrees were about the same, they've gone up. They're almost at parity with men now or slightly above. But okay, computer science degrees have gone down to 18% of women. And so when you ask people, well, why is that? Well, we know there's this leaky pipeline. We lose women, young women and girls all the way from kindergarten through college and into the workforce. But nobody knows why, because we actually haven't collected the data to even understand the problem, the rudimentary parts of the problem of when did this happen, why did it happen, and now we're just starting to collect that data and learn, okay, what can we actually do about it? But that's like just one place in the United States, and yet I think about technology, and it's so pervasive in our society, and yet if only 18% of computer science degrees are women, and even fewer minorities, black and Latinos, holy smokes, we're not, we don't have a very diverse team at the table developing this technology that we're all using. That's a problem, and that's a measurement problem. Why do you think it's gone from 37% to 18%? As you said, we don't have the data, but your own background as a software, as a computer scientist, going up through Microsoft, is it because that culture has become more male, whether it's through video games, whether it's through just the development process that it's stigmatized Silicon Valley and other technology centers as being very male-dominated bastions. You mentioned the leaky pipeline, but you must have thoughts on why it's gone down so quickly. Well, nobody knows for certain why it's gone down, but I do think there's a time, when you look at the data of when this big drop-off happened for women in computer science, it is right around the time that games became very male-centric. So when I was growing up, we played the Atari games. They're very neutral. There is no gender. You know, Pac-Man, Pac-Woman, right? But there's a yeah, exactly. And then, but then the games changed, and all of a sudden, women started dropping out of computer science in droves. And so, I don't know if it's the gaming piece or what, but when you start to get where women are dropping out, then it sort of propels itself because the fewer women that are in, then when you go, for instance, to university, there are few, very few role models. There are very few female professors or associate professors. You don't look up now in the industry and say, wow, there are you know 50 women, I can tick off their names, who are doing great apps or running this tech company or doing that thing. Without role models to look up to, women say, ooh, I'm not sure that's for me, right? And so we have a lot of pieces to fix, um, both telling girls at young age, you can be great at math and science and computer computer science. And we have a lot of things to fix, I think, in high school and at college, but then also this role modeling. And so, you know, we need, even if it's a percent or two as we go along, each one of those will make a difference to eventually saying this is a field women really want to be in. And they should want, they're, they're incredible jobs. I, I loved working in the computer industry and they're very good paying jobs too. I mean, so much of this battle, and you addressed it, particularly among minority women as well, is even lower statistics. And there has been such a push to bolster STEM exposure, science, technology, engineering, and math to girls at a young age to try and keep them vested, keep them involved. They're going to have people peel out when they're childbearing, mm -hmm. peel out 
when they get to this. But in terms of that very young age and making young girls, young women excited about science, math, technology, computer science, is that half the battle of really targeting women at a much younger frame on the timeline than perhaps we have been? Yes, I think, yeah, as I said, the pipeline is leaky all the way through. Young ages, high, middle school, high school, college, industry. You have these dropout points, these loss points everywhere along the way. But one thing we know for even young kids and middle schoolers is we know if you put, let's say you send a girls off to a computer camp in the summer. They're, in, they're excited, they're interested Coding to camp. go. Coding camp. They go. If all the posters on the walls are males and you ask girls after the camp how they felt about how they performed in camp, you get a much lower rating than if the posters on the wall are half female, half male, or if all the posters on the wall are female. So a girl doesn't perceive she did as well if all she sees are male role models on the wall. So that's just like this one little thing that we can change, but I think there are a lot of big and small things we can change, and including even at the college level, having you know female associate professors and professors having uh, classes where when you go in, the problem set isn't all just theoretical, but it's a real-world problem that you're trying to solve right off the bat with coding. Women are much more interested in real-world problems, and you hook them, and then they stay in longer. Looking at sort of the wider uh, skills gap we see in terms of our economy, in terms of equipping children for the skills they're going to need in an economy where broad swaths are going to be automated, where robots are going to mm-hmm. be doing a lot of the jobs that workers traditionally did. Are we doing enough? Are we, is the education system really equipped right now in the way we teach children to make them to go out into the modern workforce to be mm-hmm. equipped for the jobs of the future and not the jobs of the past? No. I mean, the public school system in the United States is failing two-thirds of the kids, right? We know that only a third of the kids who go through our K-12 through public education system are actually prepared to go on for life, for career and for life. I mean, many of the kids, more than that, get into college, but then so many of them drop out that freshman year because they get into these remediation classes where they didn't have good enough algebra, they don't have good enough writing skills, and they get discouraged and they drop out then. So, no, our system is not working properly to educate kids, even for the jobs of today, much less the jobs of 10 years from now. And we, we should do something about that. You've gone on your own sort of personal journey in terms of becoming a very public advocate for some causes. You were a rising star at Microsoft before you were married. You left to raise children, your three children, and since over the past 15 years have really taken on increasingly public profile in terms of fighting for some of these causes, as you've described, you believe in. How difficult has that been? How much of a learning curve has it been for you on a personal level Mm -hmm in becoming the Melinda Gates now, who's not the Melinda Gates that was probably 10, 15, even five years ago? Well, I think uh, if you'd asked me back then, I would have said the learning curve felt very steep, right? <laughs> and um, I'm, a, I'm a very private person, right? So even the idea of, uh, you know, I'm, I was dating Bill, so I certainly knew what a public life, you know, he had to live in certain s- scenarios. Um, I knew what that looked like, but then to actually live it was kind of a different thing. Um, And I think where it really hit me, though, was once we had children, because I had to really think about how do we have a private family life where I can allow our values to be instilled to our children and for them to grow up as normally as they possibly can, given the circumstances of the wealth, right? And so I spent a lot of my years where I purposely was not out in public because I felt like the chance that I could take them to an activity, get to know other parents, be in their school where I'm just another mom in the school, um, there was a much higher chance of them being able to have that privacy and us have that privacy as a family if I wasn't a public figure. And then as they became older and I started to really think about the values I was teaching them and particularly talking to my girls about you know, to use their voice in the world and to be a strong woman, I realized, well, I need to role model that. And they see me role modeling working hard at the foundation. They see me role modeling going out and I was doing lots of trips to the developing world then. 
but they weren't seeing me use my voice behind things and things they knew I cared deeply about because I would talk about them. We would talk about them as a family with Bill and our son and our two daughters around the dinner table. And I thought, you know, they're old enough now and they're, they're far enough along in their, their own lives that I can take a more public role. And I should, because I think I started to realize that I thought I could give voice to some things, particularly issues that I was seeing for women in the developing world that for whatever reason, no one else was. And um, so I made a very conscious decision that I would start to be more public. How much of this do you think goes down to your upbringing and sort of mm-hmm. always pushing yourself, growing up, you know, getting into Duke, you know, going and doing that, but that at a very early age, you instilled in yourself that you were a competitive person mm-hmm. probably, but that you wanted to make a difference. Um, I knew coming out of high school that I wanted to make a difference in the world. Um, I really had this belief already, and maybe it had been instilled in me, um, I think both by my parents and the nuns, these pretty liberal nuns who taught us in high school. But I had this belief that one person could change the world, that any one act actually had a ripple effect. You don't know how many people you touch. And so, yes, I was ambitious and I had, you know, and my parents uh, gave me, you know, they gave me all the hope in the world that I could be anybody I wanted to be. They always said, if you can get into a great college, you know, you're, you can alight any dream you have. We see your potential. And so I worked very, very hard, but I think I have that belief that, yeah, one life uh, can be changed by another person and that we ought to live that out as much as we can in the world. I certainly never thought this was the path it was going to take. Um, but yeah, and I, and I like to go out and talk, I I still talk to groups of young girls in middle school or high school, or, or sometimes an all women's group, sometimes a mixed men and women's group, but to try and inspire people and realize that, and have them realize that no matter how they give back, whether it's in their own community, um, whether it's working with the home in a homeless shelter in their own community, they make a difference in somebody's life. And I think that also kind of helps give meaning to our lives as well. And so I, I sometimes go out just to inspire people just from my own journey of what I've learned in case it hopes inspire them in some way. The foundation has had many successes. And when we look at polio, when we look at other initiatives that it's been involved mm-hmm. in, women's contraception, it's also had failures. It's also had struggles. It's also sure. had challenges. And when you look at some of those failures and taking learning lessons from them, what are you really, what would you really say that was so much tougher than I would have thought it would be, mm. would have been, that we thought we could do X and we actually could only do Y. How frustrating is it or how much does it actually motivate you? Well, it certainly is frustrating in the moment. And again, you have to take the frustration in, right? I mean, we're trying to do very ambitious things. We're trying to eradicate the second disease off the face of the planet. We've only ever eradicated one human disease, smallpox, and we're trying to eradicate polio. So you know, last year we'd gone two years, the world had polio free in Nigeria and we thought we were on our way. It takes three years to your certified polio free. And there were a few more cases in Nigeria that were in those very tough remote areas where there's a lot of um, violence. And so that was a very sad day for us at the foundation, for Bill and for me. You know, those sort of 72 hours you're taking that in, you think, oh, we thought we were there. And we know how hard it is on the partners, right? They're the ones who do that hard work in the field, the vaccinators who want to be done, the villages who want to be done. But then you pick yourself up and you say, okay, leadership's, we're, you know, we're going to lead on this and it can be done. We know it can. We know why these outbreaks happen. We've learned from that. We've learned from that setback. We've learned what we have to do next. And so you pick yourself up and then you lead. And, um, you know, we're still confident we're going to get polio. And uh, I think we're hopeful, uh, knock on wood somewhere, that this will be the last year of a case of polio. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a terrible disease for a child to get where they don't have you know, the ability to walk. And that's just, that's just senseless. We don't have polio in the United States anymore, right? It's, it's crazy that a, a child, just because they're in an impoverished area living in the developing world, still gets that disease. That, that shouldn't be. You talk about this quite extensively in the letter, this fight for zero, this mm-hmm. challenge to take it down to zero. Now, there's some people who would say just bringing it down to, what was it, 32 cases mm-hmm. worldwide last year, would, would view that as success and would say, we've crack this almost, let's divert this funding, let's divert, look elsewhere. But still, you push for this absolute zero number. Tell me why that means so much. Because zero, so zero just in the case of polio. So if we left it, let's say we left it, that we said, oh, 30 children a year, only 30 are going to get polio. 
that's not the truth because what happens is polio spreads. So, you know, it would be 600 the next year and it would be 8,000 the next year and then we'd be back up at 20,000. And and I think you have to say, even of the 30, it's tragic for any one child to get that disease when it's a needless disease, but it would spread. Disease spreads. And the other thing is, yes, it's costing a lot to get down to these last zero cases, but eventually we will get to the place where we won't have to spend the world on polio at all anymore. There will be a day long in the future where we won't even have to vaccinate in the world for polio. And so you then stop spending this money on polio because it's done. And you then do take that money and you spend it on other things like HIV AIDS and malaria and tuberculosis. So a win in that, I think, would both give momentum to the world and we'd then be able to say, okay, those billions of dollars, now let's work on other things like malaria, which is another big childhood killer. Are you frustrated we still don't have a vaccine for AIDS, HIV? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that is one of, when you say failures, you know, or one of the things that we thought by now we would have, Bill and I definitely thought, 15 years back, that we would have a very robust HIV AIDS vaccine, at least in a phase three trial. I mean, very, very close to delivery. But, you know, it's been a very tough disease. And we still have a portfolio of HIV AIDS vaccines. um, And we keep moving those candidates along with our partners. And I think from one of the things that has happened in HIV, which is great, is I think the scientists are all learning from each other. All of each of those dead ends that are taken where they try a vaccine and it fails for some reason, All of that is funneled into a database, and that data is all shared. So the next vaccine candidate has learned from all of those previous ones. But, yeah, it's it's sad for the world that we don't have an HIV-AIDS vaccine. And there are millions of people who still die from HIV-AIDS in the developing world. I want to close this interview almost uh, where it began in the letter. You talk about that 20 years ago when you and Bill went to Africa, you went on safari, I think it was, and you saw... Children dying, you said, because they were poor, Mm. not because of any other factor, but simply because they were poor, and that you found it the most unjust thing that you'd seen. And you describe, you say, it was that experience that that has defined your marriage and also your partnership ever since then. Tell me what you mean by that, that it's defined your marriage and your partnership. Well, we don't wake up on a single day where we're not talking or thinking or doing something about the foundation. So even when we're on vacation at a beautiful beach somewhere, you know, in Hawaii or whatever, um, the foundation still comes up on those days. One of us is probably reading a book about something or we've seen something in the news or we're reading a report. I mean, it is, I mean, Bill left Microsoft earlier than he had told me he would when we first got married. He'd always said, I'm going to do philanthropy, but I'll do it when I'm in my 60s. But in fact, he left Microsoft eight years ago to devote his life, to devote his time to this. And so it's, you know, it's reoriented our lives. We spend, you know, the most time on our family life and on the foundation. And so, um, I think it's defined our life that way. And I think it constantly pulls at you to figure out what are my values? How do I want to show up in the world true to those values? Are we putting our money down? Are we putting our voice down behind the things that we most care about? Are we teaching our kids in the right way about the responsibility we feel that we have as a family? Because we've been so incredibly blessed and lucky um, to grow up in the United States and for Bill to start Microsoft. And uh, so we've oriented our lives all around basically the foundation work. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks, Megan. Thank you for listening to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at Megan Murp. Business Week is on Twitter at at BW. And Debrief is available on iTunes, the brand new Bloomberg app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. 